In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. What does dumpster diving and bathing in cash have to do with the Money Tales podcast? Welcome to the inaugural episode of Money Tales, where these questions will be answered. My name is Cami Doder, and I'm here with my colleague, Sandy Brager. Hi there, this is Sandy. Cami and I were delighted to have our first Money Tales conversation with Rabbi Ryan Bauer. Rabbi Bauer has served at Congregation Emmanuel in San Francisco, California since 2005. He's a deep thought leader, wise and trusted counselor, and an instigator of social good. He's also really fun, down to earth, and has a lot to share about money. During the course of the Money Tales interviews, our guests talk about areas of personal finance that we believe listeners might want to learn more about. So at the end of each interview, we're including a short financial insight to give you an insider's view on the topic. In today's insight, we focus on the ins and outs of charitable giving and how best to support the charities you're passionate about. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Rabbi Ryan Bauer. Rabbi Ryan Bauer, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad that you're here with us. Today, we'd like to have a conversation with you about your life and the role that money plays in it. And to get us started with this conversation, we're hoping that you will tell us a little bit about the arc of your life and what got you to where you are right now and maybe share two or three short pivotal moments that changed the direction or maybe helped make you the person that you are today. So a whole life story in a moment. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I grew up in a very small town down in the peninsula called Portola Valley. And my parents had come there for my father to get his PhD at Stanford. And his family thought he was crazy because they were in the shoe business and he wanted to go into this thing called computers. And he was a physicist. And why would you throw your life away on computers when you could sell shoes? So he was quite the disappointment. And why would you need a PhD? And so I grew up in this really small town. And part of my parents, when he finished his PhD, Texas Instruments came and said, we really want you to come back to Texas, be a researcher. And they looked at each other and they looked at Texas and they grew up in the segregated South where there was two different color drinking fountains, if you're white or not white. And since they grew up Jewish in Dallas, that people would talk to them at school, but you weren't allowed to have play dates with my parents because they were Jewish. And they said, we are not going back to the segregated South. We're in California. We are staying here. And so they decided to stay here. And so when I was raised there, I was raised in a very mission-driven household. By first grade, I could tell you what my mission was. They say, so what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, my job is to make the world a better place. Wow. Now, we were very clear they didn't care how we did that. That's the reason why we were here. And so I do remember in first grade that I was actually upset at Martin Luther King because he was one of our family heroes. 
and he had fixed all the world's problems. I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? That guy fixed everything. Eventually, I realized it turns out there were a few problems left. But really, in first grade, I knew the person we were aspiring to be was Martin Luther King. And that was the kind of work we were expected to do in the world. And at the same time, when I was in first grade, my grandmother died. And it was my first, I guess you could say, introduction, understanding of death. And in trying to understand death, and I'm also growing up in a very science-driven household, where it was really trying to wrap my mind around the idea of what does the infinite mean? What does it mean to literally be gone forever? And it was this thought experiment that I just couldn't get to the other side. I think far, 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 and then, but forever I couldn't comprehend. And I wrestled with it for years and years until eventually I decided to kind of pause that thought experiment because I couldn't get to the other side. And since my father was a physicist, we're talking Big Bang, we're talking science constantly, and he's at a place called Xerox Park, which I only find out later becomes quite significant in the world of computing and scientists that were playing with me all the time. And so when I got older, I was clear with what my goal was. And I think by the time I was in middle school, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to be the first president in the United States. I was going to be the first Jewish president is what it turned out to be, because that was going to be where I was going to make the larger social change. By high school, I was already an avid newspaper reader, and I read an article in the newspaper about a grief organization in Palo Alto called CARA. And I called them up and I said, I would like to be a grief facilitator. And they go, you can't be 15 years old. They go, the other youngest person in here is 30. No. They hung up on me. So I called them back. I said, listen, this is Ryan again. I would like to be a grief facilitator. They said, no. I said, I'm going to just keep calling you every single day until you agree to do this because I think I would be good at this. And so I, for 30 days in my phone calls, I go, oh, fine. Come down here. You can talk with us. They said, okay, we'll train you, but we're not committing to anything. And then they trained me and they said, okay, you can become a grief facilitator and we'll see how it goes. And so I became a grief facilitator for kids whose parents had died, where I would meet, I think it was every other week with this group. And we would do, there was play therapy and art therapy and a steam room where people would scream and yell and talk about what it was like. And I loved it. I just loved it. And so I did that for two years. And in there I go, okay, so I'm going to be the president of the United States and a therapist because I want to make large social change. And I thought those are the two places to do it and head off to college. I went to UC Berkeley and I wasn't sure how I was going to combine these things together, but I still knew what my mission was. And so when I was a freshman, I said, listen, if I'm going to be president, I need to see if I like politics. So I started getting on different committees when I was on campus and by the time I was a sophomore, one of the groups I was on, Al Gore came to campus and he wanted to meet with us. And so I went into this meeting with Al Gore. There's a lot of people in there. It was one of the groups that I was a part of. But it just seemed like a lot of talk and not a lot of action. And I was like, huh, well, maybe I don't want to do that. I'm not sure if president's the way to go. And then for my junior year, I moved to Israel for my junior year abroad. And at the same time, when I was at Berkeley, I was studying psychology and also political economies of industrial societies, trying to understand policymaking and economics and game theory of how do you influence large groups of people. And when I got to Israel, I suddenly started looking at the prime minister seemed to be more of an effective change agent than our president did. And then I started noticing that the mayor seemed to be more effective than the prime minister did. And I started assisting with some research with a professor I had connected with where we were going into the Palestinian territories and the Israeli territories and examining violence within schools among the kids and meeting with superintendents and principals. And I was like, wow, those people are making more change than the mayor is. 
And I was noticing this pattern that the smaller of a population a person worked with, the deeper of an effect a person had on the change. Where the president could maybe touch hundreds of millions of lives, it only went a millimeter deep. But the greatest change agent in the world was actually your parent. The parent is the foundational person who you think of. And then when you kind of move up from there, oftentimes it's that school teacher because in that formational part of your life, it's the person you're with every single day and usually spending more conscious hours with than with your parent. And so I was, okay, so maybe not president, maybe I'll be a mayor, and a therapist, and a teacher. And the reason why I was interested in teacher was because when I came back to the United States, I started teaching at a synagogue and I fell in love with teaching. And I'd also fallen in love with Judaism at this point. And I saw this big spiritual gap in the Jewish community that needed to be filled. And I wasn't sure I was going to combine all these things. It still didn't make any sense to me until I was asked to lead an Israel trip. I think my last year of college and I had nothing else to do that summer. So I went and I led the Israel trip and I had an aha moment that a rabbi was this Renaissance job. It was a person who could do the politics. They could do the therapy. They could do the teaching. They could do the spirituality. They could actually work with the greatest change agent in the world, which was the parent, and they could work with an entire community. And so I said, huh, I think that's what I want to do. And so I started testing out, did I really want to work for the Jews? So I got a job in the East Bay where I oversaw five schools. There was hundreds and hundreds of kids in these programs and a big staff and a board that was critical of everything we did. And I wanted to see, would that drive me away from it? And I loved it, but I didn't like how removed I had gotten. And so I still kind of snuck out one night a week and would still teach classes to kind of get my kicks out of teaching. And I did that for two years and then headed off to rabbinical school. And when I was there, I still had that same mission that I wanted to change the world and I wanted to touch communities and do it deeply. And so I wanted to work in the one that had the biggest community where I could have one of the biggest reach. And that's why when I was, I think, a second or third year in rabbinical school, I reached out to Congregation Emmanuel in San Francisco and I said, I would love to intern there because it's the biggest synagogue in Northern California, one of the biggest in the United States, and it seemed to kind of fit everything that I wanted to do. And that's how I got here today. That's a fantastic story. Yeah, thank I you did. for sharing it with us. I think I could spend all day just diving into so many things. Could you tie something for me, your mission-driven household as a boy? Does money ever come up? Are you ever having a conversation about money or is it all about good? When did you start bringing that into your conversation? Because you do need money. I think my parents could have done a little better job with money. We knew that they would give donations. And we definitely knew that if the form, I think the rule with my mother was whoever would ask her for a donation, whatever charity would come to her, the answer was yes. We never knew how much she gave. That wasn't included. Money was kind of this private thing. You wouldn't talk about how much, but that is what you did. And if our synagogue said Sunday school this year costs a hundred dollars, but the true cost is 300. Every time my family would definitely be paying the 300 to make sure that everyone else had the chance to go. So we knew about that, but when it got to any level deeper of that, I don't think we knew that at the same time, I came from a very frugal family. My mother grew up very, very poor. They wanted to make sure that we knew about that and the value of money. And so my father traveled a lot and would always bring back hotel soap and shampoo. And so I had never had a real store-bought bar of soap ever. And we were told 
because we have this hotel soap, that's the reason why we can afford college for you. We all thought this. We all believed it. I got to college. I, of course, running out of my hotel soap and I have to go to the store to buy a bar of soap. And I'm like, soap is not that expensive. My sisters and I, we all joke. We literally thought that's how you paid for college was you just don't buy soap. But they wanted us to have the value of money and to make sure you're not spending on everything, including the hotel soap. And it was a way you kind of cut back in order to fill up our college accounts. And that was the narrative we grew up. And how did that narrative play a role in your life as you were growing up? What did it feel like when you bought your first bar of soap? I mean, I was always very, very, I don't know if tight is the right word, but almost fearful as if I was a child who had grown. Let me go back. My mother went out and she got a specific babysitter for us in Portola Valley. And Portola Valley, as you know now, is very wealthy, but it was wealthy back then too. Not like it is today, but it was wealthy. She went out and hired a babysitter, I think in her 70s or 80s, who grew up in the Depression. And the reason why she hired her was that she wanted to teach us how do you live without having any money at all? And this is a true story. She would take us dumpster diving in Portola Valley. And my mother loved this. This is fantastic. The kids, where would they get food? We would head down to the local grocery store. She would take us to the back, teach us how to get into the dumpsters ourselves. And it was incredible. You get a head of lettuce, which they throw out because it looks brown. You pull out the outside pieces, boom, perfect lettuce. And so all of my sisters and myself were taught to dumpster dive with these babysitters. And so we was definitely taught from that almost a depression mentality of how do you make sure you are holding on and saving enough because you never know what's coming and you have to know what it's like to be on the other side of the track. And part of that was because that's my mother's narrative is that she grew up on the other side of the tracks. And even though that I'd grown up and now we jumped over them, she wanted to make sure that we understood what it's like to live on both sides. Rabbi Ryan, I have to tell you, my mom, as we just talked, is very, very sick and is not saying many words. But <laughs> the one thing she said to me is she said, make sure you don't go to Gelson's. Pavilions is much less expensive. And she's <laughs> literally telling me, and she's only got about 10 words she can say. And she's going to make sure that she tells me, go to the store that's less expensive where you'll have sale items. Yeah, I think those money messages are so interesting. They come up a lot in our client conversations. And I think it's wild to see how ingrained they can be in the people who sort of first experience and form the messages. And then as they pass it down, it almost lives in our DNA. And it can be difficult to replace some of those money messages. For myself, it was challenging. I mean, I would say if I think growing up, Money was very expensive. Say more about that. There's a point where every single thing you're doing that you're afraid to spend money on or you're counting that you owe me this or that person owes me that, it doesn't need to always be as expensive as we treat money. And it can add a lot of just sometimes unneeded energy. I'm not saying not to be prudent, but when we're counting everything all the time, money can become more expensive than it needs to be. It's a great lesson right there. It really can be. And I'm curious, just putting all these pieces together. So you're growing up in Portola Valley, dumpster diving. Yes. <laughs> when did you first become aware of your friends' possessions? And were your close friends having a different money experience as far as you could tell or were paying attention to? I mean, it's interesting. I had two best friends growing up and one... The joke was I would always help them carry the Christmas tree in in December because I was the biggest one out of everybody. And 
the Jewish kid would come and help carry the Christmas tree. And then I would call him on the 25th to find out what he got. And he always got the best stuff for Christmas. My other best friend lived in the house that his grandfather built. I believe he actually still lives there. The water came from a spring. There was no locks on any of the doors. The heating was the wood that they would chop down in the summer and dry out for the winter. And I knew I was in the middle between these two, but it wasn't what defined where we had fun. There was an equality we felt among each other where we could go play with the fun trains at my one friend's house. The other friend's house, we would literally climb up trees with rock climbing ropes and hang cargo nets up in trees and sleep in trees at nighttime on this massive property, which his grandfather had built, which is still rustic. And you need a four wheel drive to get to his house every single time you'd go there. And so I knew money was a thing, but I didn't think there was a corollary where I was definitely hammered in my head. Money does not buy happiness. If anything, I was told it usually kind of can cause this, the opposite. And in my growing up, it was, there was not really a corollary. Our best times we had was not the planned activity, but building a go-kart out of wood with a lawnmower engine, duct taping mag lights to the front and exploring through the woods in the dark at nighttime and finding places to camp with machetes to kind of go through the woods and find places to sleep. That is awesome. So if we transition to your adulthood, we go off to Cal, you have all these really enlightening experiences, learning who you are, what you want to do. How's money figuring into all of that? It can be hard when you go off to college and you're on that road to adulthood and being independent. Were you thinking about money at that point, Ryan? In college, I thought about money in the fear that I wouldn't be able to afford life. That was my biggest fear. And in the household I grew up in, my job, I mean, I had little odd jobs as kids, but my job was school. In college, my job was school. I was given this luxury by my parents that education was our number one priority. And so our undergrad was paid for and all I had to do was study all the time. And so then the kind of the cliff came, which was right after I graduated from college and now I'm suddenly on my own and I didn't know would I be able to afford soap because soap was apparently very expensive. And so I would say the first six months of being on my own, I was surprised by how life was not as expensive as I thought it was going to be. I was actually able to survive for very little living with a bunch of friends in a house in so South Berkeley or Oakland. It was right on the border. And we just had a great time. And that fear of that I wouldn't be able to afford life vanished really quickly because I realized I was able to make enough money to subsist. Are you at that point, is it the idea that spend as little money as possible? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. One of my very good friends, we graduate at the same time. He gets paid much more than I'm getting paid. And we both worked for two years. Was it two years, I think, before we both went to graduate school at the exact same time? I mean, he was getting paid two or three times as much as I was getting paid. And when we finished, I think I had saved fifteen or $20,000. And I think he was $30,000 in debt. And it was kind of in a, huh, well, there is a benefit to kind of watching everything and being really careful with everything. And at that point, I would say I don't really have the realization yet of, I think it's a really important value. But money is also still very expensive to me at that point. And I think as I'm growing up, it's kind of a journey we're on, I'm learning how do you not make money so expensive and where do you choose to do that? And it sounds like you're talking about money at this time with your good friends. And was that an easy conversation from what you recall? Oh, yeah. We were all kids growing up. 
one friend, he was so excited with his first paycheck, true story, that he actually took his paycheck, went into the bank and cashed it for all $1 bills and took, I don't know, it was like a thousand dollar notes, whatever it was, maybe it was a thousand dollars. I don't know. It was a lot of $1 bills. And then he took a picture of himself in the bath covered in $1 bills. So excited. <laughs> that yeah, I mean, we talked about money and it was exciting when you had that first independence that you could buy things, but I didn't feel like I could buy things yet. When did that happen? Probably only relatively recently in my life. What gave you that feeling that it's okay? I think probably as I understood the concept of when are you making money too expensive and when is it one little thing to do, maybe like a little nice thing, it's okay to make that balance between the two. But it's definitely a conscious choice later in life to do that. So I want to switch the conversation to the work you're doing right now and how money plays a role in that. And I have many questions for you in this regard because it's really, I think, fascinating. First off, in your congregation, the congregants span all facets of the very wide wealth spectrum in San Francisco. There's people with no financial means and people with an abundance of financial means. And we'd like to know what that's like for you and what the role of money is in the work that you're doing. I think part of it is that I did grow up Tortola Valley, Palo Alto, Los Altos is obviously very different today than it was when I grew up there. But I still grew up around wealth, not the wealth that exists today, but I grew up around wealth. And so in many respects, I think I realized, I mean, deep in my bones, I knew that I could tell you this really when I was a very young child, that money didn't mean very much in equating to happiness. Some of the most complicated people that I would grow up with were the ones who had the most money and caused the most conflict. I would see divorces and things like that. And so I never thought there was really a corollary between a person's value being correlated with what their monetary wealth is. I thought of them as just unbelievably separate. And a human is a human is a human. One of my favorite traditions in Judaism is that at a funeral, a person is supposed to be buried in a plain pine box and there's no nails in it at all. And it's supposed to be basically the cheapest casket that exists for the richest person in your community and the poorest person in your community. So as you're sitting there at the funeral, and I don't think this is for the person who's died. I think it's for the community that they're sitting there looking at this box saying, huh, same box, same box for Joe and for Sheila. They each were on paper worth different amounts of money, but according to Judaism, they're actually worth the exact same amount. And what they're wearing inside of the box is a shroud that has no pockets because you can't take anything with you from this world. And so if it's not about the amount of money the person has, what is the value? And the value becomes what the person has done in the world. Maybe what they've done with their money, but what they've done in the world, what they've done with their time, with their actions in the world. And so I knew that deep in my kishkas, like deep in my gut early on in my life. So being in a place of San Francisco that does run the spectrum of captains of industry, to people who will come to the rabbi and ask for help because they're about to be evicted and become homeless. A human is a human is a human. It's not really the thing. I don't really see it, if that makes any sense. Do I think I would have that view if I hadn't grown up around wealth? Probably not, because I do see a lot of, I also interact with people who think if they just make that much money, 
if I just IPO this one company, if I could make $15 million then, or 50 million, or whatever that number is gonna be, and time and again, like the most common thing, they get there and they go, wait, this is what it looks like here. This is not what I thought it would feel like. I gotta get to that next number. And it's this constant chase versus realizing you were actually always there. You would know the study better than I know, but I think it was out of UC Berkeley. It was a study on what was the amount of money a person had to make in order to have the same happiness quotient. And I think back then it was uh, 120 or 100. It was something. And then basically from there, if I made 500,000 or a million or 10 million, it didn't change ones. And I think most people don't realize that. We live in this amazing moment that a lot of us have windows now. That used to be what the rich people would have is windows in their home. We have running water in our homes. Some people drink fancier spoiled grape juice than other people drink. A lot of people drink spoiled grape juice now. Yeah, it's great. I'd love to, you talk about early on your passion for teaching and I think of your job now. I don't know if you think of it as a job, but being a rabbi, how do you teach about money, about these values? What do you bring into your conversations individually or in a group that helps educate people on something so important that you just talked about? We're doing a really large campaign right now in the synagogue. We're doing a capital campaign trying to raise $97 million to really rebuild for the Jewish community for the next 100 years, which is amazing because the whole thing is not about us. It's all about building something for people that I've never met and will never remember my name, which is a fun thing to do. And in that process, there's been a lot of conversations with people about making donations, making gifts to this campaign. And it has radically altered my understanding of money as well as all of Judaism. Because I'd always read about this, the sacrificial system that existed in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The farmers would bring their animals and their grain to the priests in Jerusalem, and they would make these sacrificial offerings. And I'm like, that is so weird. That was like, how is that spiritual? But that's what they did. We don't do it anymore. And didn't make any sense to me until I was involved in this campaign. And suddenly I was starting to see people making these gifts to this campaign, altering their relationship with this community and with their Judaism, that they had taken their money which they had earned selling widgets or investing in widgets or playing the stock market or whatever it was. And when they went and made this gift, they converted it into something sacred. Their daily activity didn't feel sacred, but this was a method in order for them to enable it to be sacred. And when I saw how it changed people inside, I suddenly understood the sacrificial system because that person was just a farmer. They were tilling the field, they were getting their grain, and that's what they did with their time on this planet. And when they could take what they put their time and make as an offering to say, thank you, this is how I want to seed the world, that's what their sacrificial offering was. And since we don't farm grain anymore, we maybe, in this area, we farm technology, or we farm finances, that's the offering that we can make. And so it's changed how I see it in that way. So does this change how you talk to your congregants, what you've learned through this capital campaign, and really not about the 97 million of the goal, but more 
to connect the values, their values with money and really how it's not that important? Like, do you use it as a teaching tool? Well, no, I mean, I think it is important. I don't want to say that it's not important. I think we generally are afraid of money and people don't want to talk about it. It's the big taboo topic, but it happens to be the thing that currently, since money doesn't really exist, everything's made up anyway. Everything's made up. Time is made up. The week is made up. Nothing really exists in the world. I guess the year is real because we actually rotate around the sun and the month is real because relative to the moon, but everything else is pretty much made up in the universe. And when you realize that, then you go, huh, so that's our, the thing we're going to play with now when people think their value is this made up money thing. And sometimes the government prints more of it or less of it. But that is what people are spending their time with their finite time on this planet. And that's what they're accruing on their computer screens. These numbers, these zeros are increasing. And when you realize that that's what they're putting value in, how do you derive meaning from that value? And what are people doing? Look, if I go back to the funeral, which I always find a very telling moment, in Judaism, you're not supposed to bring flowers to a funeral. Because flowers are cut, they look nice for a minute, and they're dead. They don't really change the world. You're actually supposed to make a tzedakah gift, like a gift of charity to the person. If the person who died, their top value was taking care of the homeless. You then make a gift to help homeless people. Since they are not here anymore, your money can actually go and help those families. Here at the Marin Food Bank, I believe it's if you give a dollar a day, you are feeding two families in Marin a day. That's what we're choosing for that dollar to have the value is. And so it creates the opportunity for people to really think, wow, what are you doing with your time on this planet? Because that's the, I mean, I think that's the center of it all. What's the point in religion? I would say the point of religion, and I'm not saying Judaism, but in religion is actually trying to answer the ultimate question. And the ultimate question is, what am I doing here? I don't know where I was 80 years ago because I wasn't here. I know I won't be here in 80 years, but like this weird moment, I'm here and I seem to be conscious and I seem to be able to change stuff. So why am I here? And I think religion is trying to answer that question. And if it can't, you probably should get rid of religion. If it's just like silly ritual we're doing for the sake of a ritual, don't do the ritual. But if it's always driving toward that fundamental question of why am I here and what am I doing here while I'm here, then you're probably getting closer to the answer. And I think asking Hi, I've been working really hard for this money. I set my alarm, I wake up, I sit on these, now I sit on these Zoom calls. What am I doing with my time to generate money? And then how am I affecting the world? And what am I doing with this finite time? And where do I want to move the world to on this journey? And I think considering the commonality among almost everyone, 99% of the planet, money is what people are working for. And so it really is the center of the discussion of what are you doing with your time? What are you working for? So it's money, but for what purpose? And yeah, you're collecting money. You might decide, I can tell you in my family, our top value is our kids' education. I am fine if I don't go on any vacations or fly anywhere for the next 10, 15 years. I'm much more interested. My values are in less Hawaii and more my kids' education. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. That's just what I'm choosing to do with it. Well, I'll jump in. I think that's a great approach because when we work with clients, that's where we find the happiness factor coming into play. When people can make money decisions that are aligned with their values, whatever their values are, that's where the meaning does come together. So I think what you're saying, Ryan, is quite insightful. 
and it's something that we see all the time. But we live in a world that does put a lot of emphasis on money. And I'm curious to know, in the vocation that you're in, how do you see money helping people's lives and how do you see money hurting lives? There's a line inside Talmud that says, Ein Kemach, Ein Torah. Ein Kemach means without flour, there is no Torah. And so flour is like, if you're not paying for flour or bread, or if you have no money, you actually can't do any Torah learning. Like everything's connected with everything else. So money is foundational to everything we do. If I want to take care of the homeless, I need money. If I want to feed my kids, I need money. If I want them to be educated, teachers need to get paid. I should never say all about anything. Most good on this planet, I think you can connect to money fairly quickly. I would say there's two areas that come to my mind where I see money hurt people a lot. One is the first one which I was talking to you about earlier, which is people who are chasing. And if I just make that number, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. It's like, you know, if you read mountaineering books, the theme that runs through all of them among all the climbers is that when they get to that peak, they're finally going to be at peace. And they go, well, I guess it wasn't K2, but maybe it'll be Everest. And they go to Everest and it's not Everest. So maybe it'll be the next one. And so people who are looking for peace and validation from a number, they will never find it. Because the person who thinks if I make a million, I'll be happy. Because when you get to a million, then you go, well, what are those five millionaires doing? And the five millionaires are oftentimes looking at the 10 millionaires and the 10 are looking at the 50 and they're always looking until the person who realizes, wow, I was right here all along. So that's the first one. The second thing, which I've seen too many times is when a person makes a lot of money in their lifetime and then they want to make sure that their kids are happy. My kid will have access to the money. I don't want them to take any job unless it makes them happy. And maybe it's just being a philanthropist will make them happy. And it seems to be almost a curse that I see people put on kids when they give them that as if happiness is of the objective. And if I give them enough money, they can just chase it because I actually think happiness a, should never be the goal. Happiness is a silly goal because happiness is fleeting. It comes and it goes. When we say America is the, the pursuit of happiness, well, anyone who's ever lost someone in their life, that means they have failed the American goal of happiness. So I would say happiness is an emotion that we get to have for fleeting moments. And when they're there, you better appreciate them and they're awesome and they're going to go away. And sadness also comes and it goes. I think if we think for our kids, how do we give them a life of meaning? And I think it's hard to find meaning when someone else just gives you a, a bucket of money and says, go find meaning. A person I was very close with, their father was different. My father was a scientist doing research, writing papers, discoveries, patents, so on and so forth. And their father was an auto parts salesman and not like the distributor to the West Coast. No, no, they sold carburetors. That is, they sold sat in a store and sold carburetors. And the carburetors meant a lot to him because when he sold a carburetor, that meant he got to feed his family. That meant he would maybe go to the local golf course with his friends and they would go and play golf once a week on the public course. It was a direct relation with, by me putting the work in to sell this carburetor, I then care for my child. And it has direct meaning and a deeply satisfied life. And so the danger I see with money is when people have so much, there's not a thought about what are the effects going to be on my kids. They don't have to go through the Mishigash that I went through. Turns out the Mishigash you go through, that journey, that's what it's about. Life is all about the journey. It's about the difficult part. And that enables us to get there. Do you talk with your kids about money? Yeah. What are those conversations? Tell us a little bit about that. 
And we talk about what our values are and where we decide to spend our money. They know that our value is on education. They know the sadaka that we give. I'm sorry, I'm speaking in Hebrew, forgive me. We tell them the donations that we make, why we're making those donations, and why other people will ask for money. I don't give to every single organization that asks for money, and I explain the choices that we make. And there's some things that my wife and I agree on that we give to, and there's other things that that's Ryan's project. I'm not interested, therefore, that's going to be something you can give to, but that's just not my thing. But we let them know that we do that, and we also let them know that, A, we're lucky enough that we're able to make gifts like that to different organizations we support because we think the work that those are done in the world, they matter. So when my kids say, well, I think we should give to this organization, they do not get to decide where my money goes because I don't think it has much meaning to them. They didn't actually work for my money. They get to be their own philanthropists. My son, he's 12 years old, has decided that he would like to give to our capital campaign at the synagogue. At first, he came with some outrageous number. I believe outrageous because I'm thinking about the number he's offering versus his current net worth. If people were generous, we would have finished a long time ago. And I had tell him that's actually inappropriate, the amount you want to give. It's amazing you want to give, but you have to think about this over a five-year period that you're going to be giving this. It's a five-year gift you're making. And it has to be something you'll have to be able to consistently do. And it's birthday money you got or jobs you've done and watering the neighbor's garden. And so he did some long, hard thinking about it. And then I connected him with our development director and he has made his five-year pledge of what he wants to do. And part of that, I think, is the modeling. He's seen us speak about it. He's seen what our values are. And this is something that he wants to be a part of. But I'm also trying to teach them with the value of it, what's appropriate. If you want to give $100, that's 25% of his net worth. You cannot do that. That's actually against Jewish law. We don't do that. That's too much. And so it's thinking about what is the appropriate amount that I can give of where I am in the world. I had the opportunity earlier this week to hear the poet philosopher David White speak on the topic of giving. And David White described giving as an art that must be practiced, like learning to play an instrument. And I thought that was really beautiful. And I wonder, Ryan, if that captures some of what you're saying, or if you have other thoughts about the idea of practicing giving. Does that idea, the giving being an art that you practice, does that resonate with you? And is that what you're demonstrating with your children? I think so. I don't think it's an art, actually. I think it's a muscle. It's interesting. And forgive me for being so Jewish, but I'm a rabbi. It's how I think. There's not a word for charity in Judaism. Because charity, it comes from the root karitas, which means to feel. And because you feel, that's why you act. So I see the person who's homeless and I feel terrible for them. And therefore, I give money to them. But Judaism is not a feeling-based religion. It's a behavior-based religion. So I actually lead with behavior, hoping that emotion will follow. So I see the homeless person. I give the money. Hopefully, I feel good by doing it. If not, I still give the money. And so I think about it with exercise. Very rarely do I want to get on an elliptical machine. But I do it anyway, and I lead with the behavior knowing that it's the right thing to do. And I, most of the time, feel like I'm in the right space afterwards. 
And so when I think when it comes to giving money, oftentimes we don't want to. It would absolutely be more fun to go spend my money on, I don't know, a new Apple product of some sort. But since I think it is like working a muscle, that if you're constantly doing it, it just becomes part of my cadence of what I'm doing with my time in the world and the way I view my time here and how I'm expressing it. And if I count it up at the end of my days of what effect did I have, if I've been constantly doing my philanthropic exercise over time, I will have made a significant impact to hopefully shift the world from where it is today to closer to where it ought to be. I probably won't complete it, but I'll get it a little bit closer. That's very helpful. I think that's a very interesting and cool perspective to have. Thank you for sharing that. Ryan, as you look forward in your life, what do you want to do? What do you most want to do that you haven't done yet? So when I grow up, (laughs) (laughs) I would like to have a greater impact in trying to shift the world in a more coherent and organized fashion and where it's scalable and enables people to access power that they didn't realize that they had to make change. I guess that's kind of vague terms. How would I say that more specifically? I think part of it is taking things that we've learned when people can take what power that they do have to create change. And if they go all in on that and you get a community to do it, you can make massive change. And if you start creating platforms for people outside of urban centers, which maybe are usually more comfortable with that, the change that we could make would be dramatic to empower people outside of those places to know that everyone has a certain amount of power. They just don't necessarily realize it. I'd like to know, have you thought much about what happens when your life is over? I think it's one of these questions that I guess I can take it on two fronts. I'll first talk a little afterlife and then I'll go a little more practical. So I think when I learned this from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he only wrote one essay on this, but he poses the question that if you want to talk about the afterlife, you probably should start your discussion by talking about the pre-life because we're all far more comfortable with that. Because 100 years ago, I wasn't here, neither were you, neither were any of us. And so you have to ask yourself, well, 100 years ago, even though you weren't here, did the world matter? And I would say, yes, the world absolutely mattered, even though I wasn't here. And then suddenly I appeared, and then I became conscious. And now I have this amazing ability to actually cause change in the world. I can pick up a pencil, I can move it. Could not have done that 100 years ago, and I will not be able to do that in 100 years. Now, if I can move the pencil, I can move a lot of other things in the world. If I think that the entire universe is just about me and me alone, when I end, everything ends. But the fact that I started my discussion that the world mattered and existed before I got here, I also think it must matter and exist after I'm gone. And so, yeah, when I am gone, I'm physically gone, and I don't really know where I go because I've never met someone who's gone away forever. My assumption is I return to the great everything that I used to be a part of. I lose my individual consciousness, but my molecules rejoin with the planet. But while I'm here, I can cause a lot of influence and I can affect people. And so the discussions that I have with people, the discussions I'm having with you, that even though we're sitting over these microphones, I get to be inside your head and I get to change the way you think and influence changes you. And so right now, if I died, God forbid, but if I died right now, these words are still sitting right inside your head. 
And so even though I'm physically gone, that nothingness that makes me me and what makes you you is actually still here. There's even been studies done when they do brain scans of people that if you're sitting in a room getting a brain scan and you ask your mother a question and they look at the image of your brain and then you go a few years later when your mother's not in the room and you say, imagine you're asking her that question, you cannot tell the difference between the two pictures because it looks like you're having the conversation. And so I think of what I do with my time here is that I'm trying to have influence in the sphere that I can touch in my children, in my community, and in the world, really to try to get the world closer to a perfect place. Maybe we'll complete the task. My guess is I won't finish it. But if I play well and I communicate well and try to use my time as effectively as possible, I think that's the change that I have in, in the world with what I've done with the zeros that exist on my computer screen that is my bank account, but also in what I'm doing and the influence of other people and the way I'm remembered and carried on. Because the fact is what I do, even how our conversation started, how, what drives my mission, what drives my mission is what my mother told me, what my father told me. And I'll be driving my kids and other kids and other humans that I influence. And it's not just my parents, but it's the shoulders that they stand upon and the cultures that we stand upon as we interact and touch each other. Bye, Ryan Bauer. Thank you for this really wonderful conversation and for leaving us with so many words that will resonate inside our heads and our hearts too. It's a pleasure. That's great. I love it. Thank you, Rabbi. It was money tales, like you said, the tales go on. They live in us and you shared some great wisdom. So thank you. Thank you. Hi, Sandy here with the Money Tales Personal Finance Insight. During the interview, Rabbi Bauer discusses the personal benefits of charitable giving. There are many ways to give to charity to support the causes and organizations we care about most. We can volunteer our time. We can lend our skills. Maybe the charity could utilize our cooking, fundraising, or other talents. We can also leverage our relationships and our assets on behalf of the charity. Let's drill down on gifts of assets to charity. When we give items of value to a charitable organization, we can deduct the value of the gifts on our income tax return, which results in a lower tax bill. This is a good thing. The tax law lets us deduct the donation of many types of property. This can be anything from art, cars, instruments, clothing, athletic equipment, furniture, and even real estate. The charity can either use these items directly or sell them and repurpose the proceeds. If the amount of the property is $500 or greater, you would have to get a qualified appraisal. We can also deduct money we give to charity from our taxes. And one of the most attractive things we can give from an income tax perspective is appreciated investments that we've owned for more than one year. When we do this, we get to deduct the value of the investment on the date of the gift, and we don't have to pay any tax on the underlying gain. Let me provide a quick example to drive this point home. Let's say you bought a stock for $10,000 in 2018 and it's now worth $25,000, meaning that it is appreciated by $15,000 since you bought it. Because you've owned the stock for more than a year, if you give the stock to a charity, you can take a $25,000 charitable gift deduction and you don't have to pay any tax on the $15,000 of appreciation. That's a double win in terms of tax savings. In order to take advantage of the charitable gift deductions, the sum of all of your itemized deductions, which includes things like mortgage interest payments, 
state and local property taxes, plus charitable gift deductions, must be greater than the standard deduction we could alternatively take. In 2020, the standard deduction is $12,400 for a single person and double that, $24,800 for a married couple. The amount of the charitable deduction may be limited to your adjusted gross income and or by the type of charity you're giving to. So be sure to discuss the planned charitable giving strategy with your financial advisor or tax professional in advance so that you know how to best optimize the gift for tax purposes. Been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.